0: It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7 Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the first in an occasional series of shows on wealth in America, how it's made, how it's distributed, what's happening to it in times like these, how it's defined and calculated, which turns out to be a far more elusive concept than you might have thought. And we're going to begin uh, at the top of the pyramid with the wealthiest of the wealthy, the rich. Why start with such a rarefied stratum who are in some sense insulated from the worst hardships of the economic crisis? Well, this is one big interdependent scramble we live in, and uh, the worlds of the rich and the not-so-well-off are linked in all sorts of ways. And besides, let's face it, we Americans are fascinated with wealth, fixated on it, you might say. Love it or loathe it, embrace it or renounce it, there's no escaping its impact. And it's just plain interesting. At least I thought so when I started to talk to people like Robert Frank, who reports on the world of the highly affluent for the Wall Street Journal. He writes a blog called The Wealth Report, and he's author of the book Richistan, A Journey Through the American Wealth Boom. Here's Robert Frank explaining how he got into the subject in the first place.
1: To me, the the reason I started writing about the rich is I'd been overseas for years, and I came back to the U.S. in 2002, and just couldn't believe that in in the eight years that I was gone, that so so many people had become so rich. And um, so I started to write about it for the paper, and then um, and I did the book, and then logical outgrowth of doing the book. Sort of coupled with was what was happening in technology. I just said, look, you know, this this is actually a chance to do sort of daily reports from Richistan, the blog. I see it as sort of a daily dispatch from Richistan, and uh, so the blog was kind of an outgrowth of the book, which grew out of my starting this whole beat for the journal, and. You know, my initial fear was, what if the wealth boom ends? But that's actually proven more interesting as a reporter than <laughs> than when it was all going on. So,
0: Where had you been during those years before you returned to the U.S.?
1: I was based in London for about three and a half years, covering um, Eastern and Central Europe and the Balkans. Really, wherever there was a dysfunctional country, I was sent there. Um, and then in 1998, I went to Southeast Asia, based in Singapore, covering... You know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Indonesia, during the, the whole Asian crisis. Uh-huh. And so I was there until 2002,
0: 2003. So, so you'd certainly seen wealth, but not like you saw when you returned to the...
1: No, I mean, especially having been in Southeast Asia during the real boom um, of the sort of dot-com era, um, you know... It, Southeast Asia, there were like five families in Southeast Asia that owned everything. And then during the wealth boom, they owned even more. But there was, you know, when I came back to the U.S., it was, it was really like this entire new parallel country had been created.
0: Which you named Richistan.
1: Yeah, and which I think also came out of my foreign correspondent experience because I just said, look, why don't I cover this new country that I see emerging as a foreign country? Because it's certainly foreign to me. And it's probably foreign to a lot of Americans. And it also allowed me to cover it without judgment. Like, I, as a foreign correspondent, I'd write about Thailand, but I wouldn't say or even imply that, you know, Thais were good or bad people, mm-hmm. just for being Thai. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the point is to, to just tell people who don't live there what it's like. And I, I sort of translated that into covering the wealthy. Like, plenty of people say, are out there saying the wealthy are great or the wealthy are evil because of their wealth. So that was already covered, but what was not was not being written about was sort of a detailed, non-judgmental look at well, who are these people, and how did they get there, and what do they do with their money, and how does that affect the rest of us? Um, so, anyway, that's a long answer. Right, right, right. Well,
0: well um, if Richistan is its own country, um, metaphorically speaking, how did you gain admittance to it, enough to report on it?
1: It was endless pestering on my part. <laughs> um, just You know, going to places like Palm Beach and Greenwich and not being afraid to ask anyone I saw really dumb and obnoxious questions. And also, once people saw that I didn't have an ideological agenda, that I wasn't out to lionize the wealthy, that I did have credibility as a journalist, but nor was I out to, you know, slam them just because they were wealthy, they saw, you know, here's a chance to tell story of what wealth is really like. So they came to trust me and once a few of them came to trust me, they would pass me to their friends and refer me to others. And that's really sort of how it worked. But it was it's really persistent because as most of us know, the wealthy are distrustful of everyone, especially reporters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it takes months and months and months, sometimes in some cases years, to develop the relationships that eventually led to the book Richistan.
0: And it results in you getting to hang out uh, in mansions and, and on yachts uh, oh, and things no, like that.
1: Somebody has to do it. <laughs> I was
0: going to say this is not exactly like the poverty beat, is it? Or no. the, or the war or a well, war correspondent. Well,
1: I, I did the poverty war correspondent thing, <laughs> and so um, I do have to say that um, you know wealth, being wealthy or hanging out with a wealthy, I'm certainly not wealthy, beats the alternative. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it must raise some. It must confront you sometimes with with ethical issues uh when you're you're offered things um i mean just just by virtue of being on the scene you must be um you know people must offer to buy you dinner take you places fly you around i mean what do you do with that
1: well you know you'd be surprised i'm i'm very careful the journal has the strictest ethics policy on earth and you know sometimes it can be downright silly if somebody I have two daughters, and some people I know who are sources sent me little gifts as a you know birth announcement or something, and they said, "Well, here's a nice little gift from Cartier or from Tiffany or something, it's silver rattle," and I had to return everything that's worth more than twenty dollars. Uh, so for these people to have you know gifts returned to them can be a little insulting, but I always do. I, You know, I'll go out to dinner with somebody, if it's a restaurant, I'll pay my share, uh-huh. um, and I try to avoid, you know, very lavish things. But you'd be surprised, most people are happy to just meet with you at their house or over lunch somewhere that's quite reasonable. And I just, you know, avoid things that might be a conflict, uh, you know, let's say staying on their boat or going in their jet or something. I'd say, well, you know, can't we meet somewhere that's that's not a problem for me? And they they understand that, and they they respect it.
0: Uh huh. So you make them do a little slumming, basically.
1: Exactly. Yeah. If You want to hang out with me? We have to go to a four-star restaurant rather than the five-star.
0: Uh, it sounds like uh, Wall Street Journal's ethical standards are higher than those of Congress.
1: Yes, yes, they're um, they're they're pretty amazing, and that was a big issue when I started the beat. I said, "Hmm, I wonder how this is going to work." And it's actually it's actually been quite fine because, as I said, the rich people totally get it, and they they, they get a lot of respect. For the journal, as a result of that, because they know that you know the journal can't be bought, and you know even with a silver rattle from Tiffany.
0: Right, right. Did you ever cross paths with uh, Sir in quotes, Alan Stanford?
1: I didn't, you know. And uh, if I had, I probably would not have asked him whether it's fun being a billionaire. <laughs> Why not? Because I already know <laughs> the answer to that question.
0: And what is the answer? Of
1: course, it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean the. Oh, the only thing more fun than being a billionaire probably is being a fraudulent billionaire before you get caught. Uh,
0: <laughs> now, there's a counter-narrative out there, of course, which is that when you're really super rich, it's isolating and, and, and can be um, sad and depressing.
1: Well, if you read Richardson, you'll see a lot of the people in the book are unhappy, and some of them are unhappy despite their wealth, and some of them are unhappy because of their wealth. Mm-hmm. What was clear to me is that If you have started a company, which most of today's wealthy did, and then sold that company, you not only lose the company, but you lose your identity. Because so many of today's wealthy have their identities tied up in their business or whatever it was that they were passionate about that they made their money from. So when they lose that, they sort of lose the the motivation to get up in the morning and to do anything. And so that's partly the money, but it's also partly that... All these people thought that money would answer all their problems, and inevitably it doesn't. In fact, it creates a lot of new problems that none of them ever imagined. For instance, how to manage it without losing it all, Mm -hmm. which which they're now discovering, how to make sure it doesn't ruin your kids, how to suddenly trust people around you, your friends, your family, who, who now look at you as a big dollar sign, and... So these people chased wealth all their life, thinking, all I need to do is reach some magic number, and it will solve the problems. and In fact, it doesn't, and it creates more. So having said that, there are people in the book where money was, uh, allowed them a lot of freedom and allowed them to keep doing whatever it was they loved doing in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that the people who used wealth to their advantage are those that saw it as one of a number of tools in life just continue whatever meaning or mission they have in in their own world, rather than, quote, the answer.
0: Um, How has it made you feel about your own, and I'm going to throw in a word here that may be unfair to you, maybe you you can reject it, but your own sort of rather pedestrian Mm -hmm. economic world? But I mean, you're a reporter. You probably get paid reasonably.
1: I would say that pedestrian is giving me too much (laughs) financial credit. (laughs) I, um, I don't own a car. We live in a small apartment in Manhattan, and in Manhattan... You can, you know, have a decent salary and still feel dirt poor because there's so many multimillionaires around you. But, and there were moments in Richistan during the reporting where I would come back from somebody's, you know, 30,000 square foot mansion and fly back to New York and then hours later get on the subway and, you know, live the life that is my life. And what really helped me through it, and I think what was the big enlightenment for me, was that... Once I understood that wealth doesn't really make you happy, and I actually saw so many miserable rich people, that I actually started falling in love with my own life, which was simple, but I had some fundamental things that a lot of wealthy don't have, which is you know, a deep tie to all my family, friends who like me for who I am, not because of what I'm worth. I have a great job that I love to do, and, you know and sort of little passions in life that I can pursue at the same time. So a lot of wealthy people get their lives so complicated that when I would come back from visiting them or interviewing them, I would come back to my own life and just take a deep breath and say, wow, I'm really lucky. Mm. So mm. that once you see that and once you learn that lesson, all of the usual predictable conflicts over, boy, I'd love to be rich and I'm not as rich as them and they have a great life and I don't like my life, that all disappears. And it made it easier for me to, to not only report it, but also not to judge them as sort of evil, bad people just because they were rich, because they had lots of problems, too. And not that I was suddenly sympathetic toward them, because you like, shouldn't feel sorry for them. But I, but I just never felt like my life was terrible because I wasn't rich. In fact, I felt the opposite.
0: So, so the, the story that I just put out, that in fact um, there, there are a fair number of unhappy rich people, unhappy in part because of the burden of the, of the wealth, is, is true in your experience.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head. There are a lot of wealthy people who are unhappy both because of their wealth and despite their wealth.
0: Huh? Did you ever meet anybody who um, was once wealthy, lost it, and was happier afterwards?
1: I did. There's a guy in the book named Pete Musser who, at the age of 78, became a billionaire. And then in the course of the next six months, dropped to a negative net worth of $14 million. Negative, wow. So he didn't just go from a billion to zero. You know, that wasn't good enough. He went from a billion to negative 14. Well,
0: he does everything with style.
1: Lost everything. Wow. And he said, he said, you know what, I'm happier. And it didn't dampen his desire to become wealthy. He actually started buying stocks again and trying to close, you know, because the whole challenge of making it back was what he loved. He loved the struggle. He loved being the underdog. And when he became a billionaire, he, you know, he, he was worried about his ability to struggle and to find challenges. So losing it all was, in a, in a bizarre way, a relief for him. And I think that we're going to start seeing that now on a much larger scale, where people who are losing huge amounts of money in this financial crisis are going to realize, you know what, number one... Money wasn't everything. And I'm still alive and I still have my health, even though I've lost all this money. Number two, maybe this is a blessing. Maybe this will force me to start over again, focus on what's important, and maybe do something new.
0: When the rich fall, like, like the guy you just described, how far do they fall? I mean, do... Do they really um do they really suffer like 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 people who've always been poor and live on the streets or live in you know you know barely get by or do they manage to hang on to to what you and I might call a, a reasonably affluent lifestyle despite being supposedly uh in, in the red you know to the tune of millions of dollars
1: There are examples of people who fall from huge wealth to absolute zero I mean during the great depression we had famous millionaires who had lost everything in stocks and started selling apples or pencils in the streets. You know, that's a mythology that was actually quite real. Yeah. Today, the more common phenomena is that the wealthy lose around 30 to 50% of their portfolios. So if you're worth $5 million and you lose half your wealth, you're worth $2.5 million. Your lifestyle changes quite dramatically in that scenario. Now, you're still affluent. I wouldn't call you wealthy, but you do your lifestyle will have to change because life at five million is different from two point five. <laughs> but when you get to the super wealthy, what I call upper richest stand, those folks, let's say they're worth three hundred million, they lose a third of their wealth are now worth two hundred million, they don't feel it. Their bank account feels it and their wealth advisor feels it because they charge you fees based on your total net worth, but your life doesn't really change. And so We see a wide spectrum of impacts on the wealthy. What is true today is that never before in America's history, perhaps since the Great Depression, has so much wealth been destroyed. So many rich people are losing so much money today that regardless of what your wealth level, you are probably changing your lifestyle just because of the amount of money you're losing in the financial markets.
0: So for for the rich folks that you cover, that means fewer luxuries, but certainly not scrimping on basics.
1: It depends. You know, upper-richistan is definitely more tweaking around the edges, maybe uh, one less trip to Europe this year, maybe, God forbid, flying first class instead of fri- flying on a private aircraft. Uh-huh. Um, that is the ultimate indignity in Richistan is having to fly commercial mm. and a lot of the wealthy are having to do that right now. Mm. But when you get down to again the place I call lower and middle Richistan, those are folks who have perhaps had to pull their kids out of private school. they are folks who have had to, you know, cut back on, on the number of houses or perhaps sell their house. And you know, the entire way in which they live their life, be it restaurants, vacations, special trips for their kids, clothing. All of that has been pared down, and the wealthy, the biggest change for the wealthy is that they're now focusing on what they need rather than what they want, and that's true at every wealth level, and that's a massive sea change from even two years ago, where it seemed the wealthy were buying everything simply based on what they could afford Mm -hmm. rather than what they
2: needed. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm Robert Polly here with the Seventh Avenue Project at KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio, and you're listening to a conversation with Robert Frank. He writes the Wealth Report blog for the Wall Street Journal, and he's author of Richistan, A Journey Through the American Wealth Boom, published in 2007. Well, the boom has since turned to bust, and that's what we're discussing today. Now, you you, you mentioned the destruction of wealth. What is wealth in the first place?
1: Well, wealth is money that's somehow generated in the economy through starting a company or making a huge salary that's then stored in the form of assets or savings or financial investments. In this crisis, we actually are seeing a lot of wealth be destroyed. It's evaporating. It's not like every dollar that's lost by one billionaire is made by another who's on the other side of some bet. Uh, what we are seeing is that everything today is worth less than it was a year ago, and that is just values and wealth evaporating, not moving from one person to another. It's not like the mailboxes in Richardson just have different names, but it's the same population. We're actually seeing the population of millionaires, the value of almost everything they own, drop.
0: Yes. Well, you know, uh, Neil Ferguson, among others, um, and I'm sure among many others, uh, points out that the real meaning of money has something to do with faith or trust. It doesn't mean a thing if if people don't believe it has value and don't uh, maintain that value. And uh, some of Richistan, as you describe it, sounds like it was propped up by belief.
1: Richistan was a faith-based country. (laughs) In some ways, perhaps the most faith-based country. And when I say faith, I don't mean religious, but I mean faith in credit and faith in the economic system, which has collapsed. Yes. A lot of the wealthy have lost trust in everything right now to the point where most of them are putting their money in gold. And I don't mean gold futures. I mean gold bars and gold coins. They are going to what I call the Armageddon trade, where they're going to the last Mm -hmm. store of value, the most trusted store of value over history, which is gold. And they're buying gold bars and coins, putting them in safes under their homes. That's how paranoid they are about confidence evaporating and what happens when a faith-based country like Richistan starts to collapse.
0: You actually know people who are taking the um, Scrooge McDuck road uh, and have vaults under their homes?
1: It, you know, I haven't talked to many millionaires or billionaires who are not buying gold and, and putting them in vaults under their homes.
2: <laughs> oh, no. That's amazing. And,
1: and, and if they're not doing that, they're... They're buying thousands of acres of land in places like New Zealand or Argentina as a place where they can go for a safe house someday. I mean, these these are people who really think the end of the world is nigh. And in some ways, the rich are the most paranoid because they see this more dramatically than the rest of us.
0: That is really... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. I, I would have thought that if I was... Wealthy that I would uh, not be too concerned, because I'm not going to wind up in a homeless shelter somewhere. I mean, at worst, I'm going to have to get rid of a few yachts and so on. But
1: My new slogan for what the wealthy are doing <laughs> with their cash is guns, gold, and farms. That's, <laughs> that's what they're buying with their cash, it, guns, my, gold, and farms. They're
0: literally buying guns or private security forces around their walled compounds. Bo- uh,
1: both. Both. They're getting, they're getting ready for if times get really, really tough
0: this is uh this is this is shocking and fascinating i, yeah. I didn 't realize well, we talk about richistan as a faith based country and you know as as of course um, things begin to crumble, we start to see uh places where it was a very shoddy structure to begin with, right you know when the paint flakes off, and you see that underneath it was just chipboard right. uh, yeah, and so we 've seen Bernie Madoff and other scammers. How many of the new rich, um I'm asking for, I guess, a, a wild guess on your part, made it by means that would now, in this new age of, of probity and circumspection, would be considered um, um, shady or questionable?
1: There are some economists who argue that the vast majority of the wealth boom of the past 10 years was fake, i.e. it was, it was over-leveraged. It was fraudulent returns and stated returns, or there were people using smoke and mirrors in their own companies i would my guess would be that perhaps as much as a third of the growth in millionaires i e the number of millionaires doubling over the past ten years maybe a third of those folks were smoke and mirrors leverage money they could never pay back um, but the economic impact of that third going down starts to affect the other two-thirds.
0: Now, you've already made it clear that this is not a zero-sum game, so uh, Richistan's loss is not Poristan's gain. What, what happens to Poristan <laughs> in all of this? Well,
1: you know, we, we've been through this extraordinary period of, uh, of what many see as excessive wealth, certainly large wealth, more millionaires created, more billionaires created than at any time in America's history. During that time, a lot of the middle class and the lower middle class were saying, you know what, we need a good depression to get rid of these rich people. (laughs) The problem is that the good depression that gets rid of these rich people is also wiping out the rest of our economy. You cannot have a selective recession. This is an equal opportunity downturn that is affecting everyone. When the rich get hit, as they are now, they stop spending, They stopped creating jobs, they stopped paying taxes, they stopped giving to charity, and now we're all in the be-careful-what-you-wish-for camp where, wait a minute, the wealthy are taking it on the chin right now, and yet no one's benefiting. Inequality is shrinking right now, not because everyone else is gaining at the expense of the wealthy, but because the wealthy are losing so much so fast that their wealth share is declining. So now people who used to say what we need is a good depression to take the rich down a peg are now saying that doesn't help anyone. In fact, it hurts the larger economy. In fact, what should happen is the wealthy need to start feeling more secure so they can start spending and start creating jobs and start paying taxes again. And so I think even though we're in this very populist period right now where the rich are vilified, there are a lot of economists and those who – Understand the economy, saying, "You know what? When the wealthy do bad, it's bad for everyone."
0: The the question, I guess, is not whether uh, whether one should eat the rich, uh, you know, mm. but rather just just how how rich is rich enough, and how um, should the wealth be distributed? Um, certainly, per- there have been periods in American history when the the gap wasn't quite so great, as you say, it was. Only eight years ago or so, you, were, you came back to the U.S. and were, were shocked by, by the number of wealthy that had sprung up in that brief period away.
1: Yeah, There's no question that over the past 10 years, wealth was out of whack, that distribution of wealth in America was unsustainable. You can't have the top 1% having close to 35% of the wealth and and have a sustainable growing economy. And you can't have the top salaries of CEOs and the billionaires making hundreds of times the median income. But the issue is, again, when, when things correct, um, is government response and the popular response, in a sense, too late? So they should have been thinking about inequality four years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's when the tax system should have changed. To change the tax system and soak the rich on taxes now when the rich are losing a lot of money, um, doesn't generate much taxes. So you'll have to lower that tax bar from 250000 whatever. And it hits the rich at the very time that they're, they're the weakest. So the problem is everyone's focusing on inequality and the rich now, whereas they should have focused on it four years ago. Instead, four years ago, Bush was lowering taxes on the wealthy and making it worse. But my point is that the policy and popular response is coming too late. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do now is focus on getting the economy and everyone in the economy, the middle class, the wealthy, back on their feet. And then we can start thinking about redistribution. You can't redistrib- redistribute wealth unless there's wealth being created.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, certainly one, um, one interpretation of what happened during the New Deal, in part, was that uh, Roosevelt may or may not have succeeded in his attempt at stimulus but that he did succeed in expanding uh the safety net so that uh people um didn't have to fear for their survival quite as much and that that helped restore some confidence eventually as well so instead of you know soaking the rich you um you create some some protection for the poor and and that in turn helps overall not only well-being but also uh, economic confidence what do you think of that
1: I think that the New Deal was critically important to restoring some stability and balance to an economy that, like ours 10 years ago, got way out of line with the rich getting far richer and everyone else staying the same. The problem is one of timing. Do you do that now, or do you do it in 2011, 2012, when the economy starts to grow again and we actually start to see some wealth creation and wealthy people getting wealthier. the, The important thing now is to get people with money to spend that money. And if you start scaring the wealthy and making them pull back and buy gold and guns and farmland rather than investing in the economy, then it doesn't help anyone. And the wealthy, the more they hear about higher taxes and redistribution, even though the numbers aren't that scary for them. I mean they'll get by with the 39.6% tax bracket. The right, problem right. is I mean, like it, psychologically if during this crisis they feel like on top of that there's a redistributional aspect to government, they'll be even more cautious about spending. My point is just wait a few more years and then do it.
0: Is it correct as many have said that that what Obama's doing is simply rolling back tax rates to what they were in the mid 90s which it was hardly an era that most people would call socialism.
1: No, these, these tax rates are not that onerous. In fact, they're far more generous than during the Reagan administration, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when there was huge wealth creation and the wealthy got very rich. The, the problem is not one of numbers, because the wealthy will be fine with these higher tax rates. The problem is one of timing and psychology. And if the wealthy feel like they're going down a track of higher and higher taxes in the years to come at the same time that their investments and their homes and everything else is worth less, they'll be less apt to go out to those restaurants to hire a few more people in their companies to expand, et cetera. And and that's the issue that we really need to address and just say, okay, let's, let's shelve this whole idea of raising taxes, which we will have to do at some point. Let's shelve it for sort of three or four years and not talk about it them, again, because of the psychological element. Right. I, don't, I don't disagree that the tax system needs to change. The Bush tax cuts resulted in a wealth distribution ladder that was completely unsustainable to the U.S. economy and would have created a lot of social unrest over time if it had been let to go.
0: I'm uh, getting back to your uh, adventures in Richistan, Have you ever been invited into one of these uh, gold-filled vaults um, that you, you told me about?
1: I have not, but I I was talking to a private banker in London who had a billionaire client in Chicago, and the client in Chicago said, I'd like to buy some gold. And the banker said, Great, we can buy some gold futures. And the client said, No, I want gold bars. And the banker said, Okay, we have one of the largest vaults as a bank here in London. We can store it in our bank vault. And the guy said, Bill, he said, you're not understanding me. I'm going to fly my Gulfstream to London. We're going to get in the car. We're going to get that gold. We're going to put it on my plane. I'm going to bring it back here to Chicago and put it in a safe and bury it under my house. And the banker just turned white because he realized that this was an entire sea change among the mindset of the wealthy. They were that paranoid.
0: Wow. Well... It's only a matter of time before Hollywood realizes this, I suspect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I hear some capers coming. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> uh, no, and, you know, the the idea that the wealthy have better information than the rest of us might suggest that maybe we should be more worried than we are. On the other hand, you know, maybe the rich have an exaggerated sense of the financial system and its, and its problems right now. Um, but when... Rather than getting comfort from talking to the wealthy these days, I actually get far more worried about the economy when I talk to the rich than when I do economists and other people uh, which is which is a huge change from just two years ago uh-huh, uhhuh and because after all, the wealthy tend to be the most optimistic, willful people in the world. These are people who you know made it because they're the ultimate optimists and maybe there's the sort of manic depressives of our economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That's what I was going to say, yeah.
1: They're, they're kind of the happiest when things are good and the most depressed when things are bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as, as for yourself, it sounds like you've managed to find a happy medium, though, uh, reporting on rather than actually um, becoming part of that world.
1: And I think for readers, it's important to understand what the wealthy are doing and how they got there and how they're managing in this crisis because i think there are lessons for the rest of us both when times are good and when times are bad and you know i think the wealthy are not just important to our economy but also as a culture because you know in a sense a lot of americans aspire to the wealthy or certainly look to them for some examples and i think what we learn now in the crisis from the wealthy is to be as cautious as you can because in some ways we've never experienced what we're seeing right now in our lifetimes, And so it's made me, as an individual, be much more cautious about spending and planning a future right now because I realize, you know, no one knows what's ahead in this economy. So I think in some ways, even though it's easy to resent the wealthy, they are instructive for the rest of us.
0: So you you think, rather than just being manic-depressives, you think they are the canaries in the coal mine? Um, But you yourself, of course said that it's a, it's a matter of faith to some extent uh, and that uh, it's a matter of getting people spending again. So, yeah,
1: I, I don't go as far as they do. I'm not buying gold and, and you know, being, buying guns and being that <laughs> paranoid. But, but I do, when I hear them talk about their own companies and their own spending, I do see that this giant engine of our economy, which was the wealthy, I mean they, they made up the bulk of consumption and spending and job creation and taxes, and charity for so long, when I see what they're planning for their own lives in the next few years, I get a little more cautious than, than I think some of my friends. And, again, I'm not way out on the limb buying land in New Zealand or going crazy like that, but, but I, I do take some caution in, in learning about the economy from what they tell me in their own lives because, in, in some senses, they are a huge part of our economy.
0: Well, if the old adage about the the guys who really did well in the gold rush being those who sold picks and shovels is true, then I'm imagining that the same is true for the people building underground vaults today. That's
1: right. And, you know, I I should end by saying that there will be people who get wealthy during this crisis. Uh, There will be lots of government contracts that go out as a result of this bailout. There will be lots of people who buy up these failed mortgages and resell them. And some of this wealth that's being lost by some will go to others. The point is that there is not a dollar-for-dollar dollar exchange and that a lot of wealth has been destroyed, but there will be some success stories. And the one thing we do know about this crisis is that Richistan and the rich will be back. <laughs>
0: and the wealth report will continue.
1: Yes. Whether it's about the growth of wealth or the collapse of wealth, the wealth report will always be around.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Robert. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Great, all the best. Good luck with your project. Okay, bye. Bye
0: Bye-bye. Robert Frank writes the wealth report for the Wall Street Journal, and he's author of Richistan, A Journey Through the American Wealth Boom. I'll be right back in just a moment. This is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today, one in an ongoing series of programs on wealth and what we make of it in times like these. We'll be looking at notions of value from a variety of perspectives, all up and down the economic ladder. And in this show, we're focusing on the upper, upper crust. Speaking of which, you may have heard me say in that previous interview with Robert Frank that um, one group of people who might be prospering in times like these are the guys who help the rich safeguard their riches. That was just speculation on my part, but uh, why conjecture when you can talk to an expert?
3: I'm Linnell Berryhill. I'm the vice president of Brown Safe Manufacturing. We've been around for about 30 years now. The uh, company was originally started by my father back in 1980. and We, we produce both residential and commercial safes um, for a variety of different applications. You know, Anything from government embassies to very high-end homes and everything in between.
0: Um I noticed that uh y- your company describes its products as high security luxury safes yes w- what's a luxury safe
3: um a luxury safe just means uh, you're integrating both a very high security safe with all of the factors that our clients want, which is convenience, you know having a lot of uh, items like g p s monitoring in case the safe is ever taken from the home they're instantly alerted um having luxury drawers inside so you can organize all of your Jewelry, having things like watch winders to keep your watches wound all the time. So they're very much around both high security and convenience.
0: Watch winders?
3: Yeah, that way if you've got more than one automatic watch, they're always wound when you take them out.
0: <laughs> wow, now that is a luxury. <laughs>
3: <laughs> very much. And it's, you know, it's a big thing. People will have a couple, and so they want them, you know, if you have to reset it every time, it's not that convenient. So
0: so, so what kinds of things do people put in, in your safes aside from watches?
3: We have our clients storing lots of jewelry, watches, but then also a a big increase in um, precious metals and cash. You know, there's so much instability with the financial markets that people are really worried. And so they've they've taken a, a bigger portion of their portfolio is now in precious metals, be it gold and silver. And then also people just feel a little bit more comfortable having larger amounts of cash at home. So then that generally leads right into needing to have a quality safe in the home as well.
0: Has business been affected then by the recession
3: um, well, we've seen just a general shift. So, you know, in general there's been an increase. We've had about a 30% increase in home sales and then a smaller increase know, about 10% in commercial sales, which is what we normally see in case of a recession um, because the crime does increase generally. And so people are, are very aware of it and they want to keep what they have with them. So they, there's just a, a general increase in, you know, protection.
0: So, so hard times are good times for the safe and vault industry.
3: Yes and no. We we take a lot of time. We just did about a four month uh, revamp of our website just to educate people because there's so many low quality safes out there that it's heart wrenching for us. We see every day. I you know I talk with people that have a very low quality safe and all it's done is organize um, their valuables for the burglar who comes in and you know can beat that thing open in five minutes. <laughs> so we've we've really spent a huge push just. Putting all sorts of safe buying guides on our website, and just a lot of consumer information. So it's been a good opportunity to really educate the public as well.
0: But business goes up in your industry when uh, other businesses aren't doing so well.
3: Generally, we see we see a rise in, you know, in the home market, and then a little bit of a decrease in some of the larger chain accounts, you know, the, the commercial accounts. Uh,
0: so who are some of your clients?
3: Um, well, I don't. I never divulge names. <laughs> I didn't <but> think so. <laughs> Um, we have a, a very high um, in number of, you know, both celebrities and a lot of people in the business world who, um, you know, they, they have a lot, and they, they want to protect it and keep it that way. We've also seen a huge increase in um, in just opportunistic theft, so help that's in the home. People that are, are hired and they're trusted, you know, they're hit very, very hard by these financial times, so they... Um, you know, things have shown up missing in homes a lot more recently. Are you so saying
0: I can't trust my butler anymore?
3: <laughs> just be very careful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, people just, they want to make sure everything's locked up in the safe. It makes it more convenient for them to wear the jewelry because it's all in one central location, and they don't have to worry anymore. So we've seen a big increase in that, too. Because Not so much the wealthy sector isn't hit as hard, but the people that they employ are. So you mm-hmm. have to be very careful and increase Security
0: overall. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Vice President uh, Dick Cheney, when he was vice president, Mm -hmm. uh, was said to have had a large man-sized safe in his office. Would that have been a brown safe?
3: Well, again, I can't say, but we do do a lot of, um, like walk-in, what they call panic rooms. So people will have a vault in their home. It's becoming more and more common. Um, and they'll start, when they leave for, you know, if you leave for vacation, things like that, uh, some of the high-end artwork is put in there and things like that, but they're also used as a panic room. So if ever there's a hold-up in this, you know, in the home, that type of situation, the family can just go into that vault and then lock themselves in, and then they can get out from the inside as well.
0: Really, the, the vault is uh, is ventilated well enough to uh, hold up there.
3: Yeah, yeah. They have to have very good ventilation because um, otherwise, humidity is a problem in there and things like uh-huh. that. But, yeah. So we now, do a lot of those type of uh, you know rooms, it's more now, common than you might think.
0: Now, now I was talking to um, Robert Frank, uh, Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. uh, reporter who writes what they call the Wealth Report, and he was describing to me how the very wealthy have, in some cases. Uh, taken their money out of various securities and other investments, put them into solid gold, yeah. and uh, taken that gold and put it in vaults or, or safes in or underneath their, their homes. Um, if I had, say, you know 50 mil in gold bars uh, that I wanted to set aside for a rainy day, would uh, one of your safes be a good choice for that? Oh,
3: yeah, definitely. And a lot of times in scenarios like that, They've taken a portion of the portfolio, and they're keeping it in precious metals. And a lot of times we'll break it up into multiple safes in the homes. But, you yeah, we've done a number of safes for for precious metal recently.
0: If, um, if I had a lot of um, value there and uh, really wanted to keep it safe, what's what's your, what's your top model?
3: Well, we have a we, – we really we, – we tailor the safe for the application. So if you're st- storing watches, the, the value can go extremely high as well. Um, if you're storing you know, gold or silver, again, the value goes very high. We have what's called our Chronos series, which has all of our state-of-the-art um, security features, and it's, it's primarily set up for watches, although we just did one recently just to store gold coins. So it, we really tailor the safe for the application.
2: Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. I notice you have various um, security ratings, I guess the industry does in general, going A through F. Yes, very uh, nice But then you have something you call Class M. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is your own... Something of your own invention?
3: Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a very dynamic in, industry. I grew up in it. Um, it's a constant cat and mouse game. We have to be coming out with new innovations constantly to keep ahead of the burglar, who is always trying to figure out what we just came out with. So it, there's always something new in this industry. Um, that's one of the newer things that we do. And what happens is a lot of times clients want the safe in a master closet. They want it upstairs. They want it somewhere where it's very convenient for them. And so then the weight becomes a factor. So rather than making this safe with the base component being a solid steel, we now make a lot of them out of uh, a ballistic armor plate, which we use a lot in our military um, applications for various reasons. But we found that the material is very, very hard, so we can, you know, the burglar can't drill through it. They, there's lots of thing, lots of advantages at a very reduced weight, so we can put it into a location that's very, very convenient for the client as well.
0: Your, your website says you've tested these things, these Class M safes, by uh, firing 50 caliber anti-sniper bullets at the same. Yes.
3: Well, it's funny. The application actually started in our military um, division because they we build vaults for the military um, to store ammunitions, and we need to keep the rounds from exiting. So it's more of a ah. containment system. But then we also realized when working with that, with that type of material that it's very, very difficult to drill through um, and lots of various different attacks. So it, it was a natural progression to start using it in our residential, the so high-end residential units as well.
0: But initially the fear was rounds going off and penetrating, getting out, hitting things.
3: Ex- exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, what are state-of-the-art attacks on safes these days? What, are they, what do they look like? Are they still a guy with a stethoscope?
3: No, well, as much as the movies like it to seem, <laughs> um, generally no. The locks are so good now that manipulating is really becoming very much a lost art. We still have people here that can do it, but it's, it's very, very difficult with the new locks. Um, you can't feel the dial the way you used to be able to. Um, but as far as like a, a sophisticated attack, there's always the drill attack and use, using what's called a bore scope, which is a very long magnifying device. So they can see in, and once a drill, a, a hole has been drilled through the safe, then they can then look at the lock and line up the wheels. That's more of a sophisticated attack. Normally what you see in a residential attack is just a brute force, you know, crowbar, sledgehammer type of attack. Um, as I said, there's been just a plethora of very, very low-quality safes out there. And with the advent of things like YouTube, you can now go in there and type in and watch, you know, your normal safe that you can buy at the local sporting goods store opened in five minutes or under by anybody. So that's now become very, very common knowledge. So whereas you used to, you know, the burglar used to come in and see a safe, and that was a big deterrent, they would go on to the next house. Now they know, great, the homeowners organized everything in one place, and I can be in there in five minutes.
0: Uh, so the safe is, has a target painted on it
3: Yeah, so you have to be very, very careful And again, that's why, you know, we've had increased sales But we've really taken that, that opportunity to try to educate the people Because we've, we've had, we talk every day to people that have lost everything so.
0: So, so if I really wanted to break into one of your safes, what would I do?
3: Well, you would need a substantial amount of time Any safe, that's what you've really done, is buy yourself time um, So you're going to need quite a bit of time and know-how
0: uh, you're not going to tell me more than that.
3: Well, <laughs> I'm not going to give you all the secrets, but people are usually amazed. When we come out, you know, after a safe has been broken into, generally you need to have a locksmith come out, and it's a very manual process. People think we're going to be in and out in 10 minutes. Even for us to get into one of them, it's, we're on the site for hours and hours. So
0: I was going to say, what happens if I forget my combination?
3: Well, we get that call quite a bit. There usually isn't a master code <laughs> that overrides <laughs> everything, um, and it's this scenario where we have to come out or a local locksmith needs to come out, and um, open the safe, and, and generally, it, it is a few hours for even someone that knows, you know, the utmost in details on that safe for them to get into there.
0: Uh, so you guys can crack your own safes.
3: Oh yeah, you can. <laughs> hmm. But again, it takes quite a bit of time.
0: So. Do, do you hire ex-safe crackers on uh, the dark side?
3: No, we we are a very family-based business, and you'll find that a lot in the security industry. Um, so all of our top people are usually family, or they've been with our company, you know, twenty plus years. It's it's a it's a skill. It's it's a definite art to get into a safe. It's not something you can teach somebody in twenty minutes.
0: Do you sell what are called biometric locks?
3: Oh yes, um, the fingerprint entries are uh, very popular now. It's it's easy. You don't have to remember code, um, so pe- yeah, people definitely like that.
0: This is where I, I I press my finger to the the lock, and it it uh, can tell that it's me, the Correct. owner and not uh, some thief.
3: Yeah, and you can program in, you know, like 10 different fingerprints. So you, your wife, you know, anyone that you want to get into the safe can have their fingerprints in there. Mm. And some of the more sophisticated locks, you can also, if you had, you know, an assistant or something that they had their fingerprint, you know, into the safe because you wanted them to file paperwork that's in there, you can also program it so that when you're out of town for three days, their fingerprint will not work during that time, Mm. things like that.
0: I don't want to get morbid here, but could a bad guy take my finger and...
3: Get no, everybody asked that question, though. <laughs> Everybody's worried about that. Um, no, it's only a live fingerprint. It's actually, um, it, it has to be a live fingerprint. And we've tried to set it up so that um, we've tested it a variety of different ways, and it, it definitely does have to be a live fingerprint.
0: So. Uh, that's reassuring. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, if I want to go beyond a safe, is a vault the next step?
3: Generally, yeah. There's very large safe, and then um, a, a walk-in-style vault is, is usually done... When the safe is, or when the home is being constructed,
0: you, you sell vault doors. So does that mean that the uh, the owner has to construct uh, the rest of the room? Yeah.
3: You know, what we do a lot of times is we consult with the owner and the architect and the builder to make sure that the room is built um, to coincide with the level of door that we're putting in. Because you don't want to put in a you know a, a flimsy vault room and then a big door. You know, it's, there's just mm-hmm. through the wall of the vault. Um, so, yeah, we do a lot of consulting on, uh, you know, getting the proper room built with the proper ventilation, um, you know, all sorts of different interiors inside the vault room to make it convenient to store the items. And then the doors, there's lots of different ways we can do it. And they all have the emergency escape so people can use them as a panic room as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the paranoid uh, must love your products.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> a, a huge portion of our business is either referral or return customers. Uh huh. It's a huge portion. Now this is a
0: family business. Your father started it.
3: He did. Yeah, thirty years ago.
0: What's it like to grow up in the safe business?
3: Well, I, I realized as I got older, it was a little bit odd. Both <laughs> <laughs> um, well, me and and my two brothers were we were raised, you know, with safes everywhere, sitting next to the desk with him. Going out, on, you know, we thought a normal Thursday afternoon was to go out and, and help them crack safes at various stores and people's homes and things like that. So we very much grew up with it. We also grew up with the, the mentality that we have to always be one step ahead. So, and that's really uh, helped over the years.
0: Have you ever learned anything from, from watching movies, heist movies?
3: Well, a lot of the big movie houses call us for advice because they're doing, you know, various different movies. And, and we also supply products and vault doors and things like that that they then proceed to blow off of all sorts of things in the movies. Um, we give them all sorts of advice as to what can and can't be done. Usually that advice isn't used because it's not nearly as glamorous as what they can come up with in the movies. So we, we often wish we could crack face as quick as they can in the movies.
0: Did you see The, the Italian Job?
3: We did, yeah. What did you think of that one? <laughs> We actually we gave them a lot of advice when they were making the Italian job, none of which they used. So, <laughs> yes, I wish I could be that woman that can open it in five minutes, but unfortunately I'm not quite there yet.
0: <laughs> Did you tell them to use Mini Coopers?
3: <laughs> no, but I sure wouldn't mind one, because they sure look fun.
0: <laughs> well, Linnell, it's it's been a real pleasure. I, I really appreciate your time.
3: Sure, no problem.
0: Linnell Berryhill is Vice President of Brown Safe Manufacturing in San Marcos, California. And that brings to a close this week's 7th Avenue Project. Meanwhile, i got to go keep an eye on my butler. You stay safe, and don't forget your combination. Dear God, you've made many, many, many
2: poor people in the world. I realize, of course, it is no shame to be poor, but it is no great honor either. So what would have happened? What would be so terrible if I would have had that little fortune? If I were a all day long, If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. All
0: day long, If I were a little bit rich,
2: I'd.